Good morning. Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy, and we're happy to gather together on the Lord's Day with you all. Uh, if you guys would open up, we're going to be in John 5, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. If you would stand up with me as we read uh, God's word from John 5, 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his, the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you can be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, put on display your glorious relationship with your son. Um, as we see it in your text today, over and over and over again, the son being equal with you. Uh, I pray that we would be able to glean what Jesus is teaching about you and what he's teaching about himself. And Lord, that we would turn to you, that we would turn to Christ, your son, and that we would look for, to him for life, um, and we would look nowhere else. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so the first 400-ish years of the church, and a little bit beyond, really first 600 years, uh, I guess we could say forever, but she was plagued by many different false teachings, particularly regarding the son's relationship with God the Father. Um, I'll give some exam four quick examples. Arius, maybe the most famous that's still around today. Arius is teaching that Jesus was a creation of God and that then God created everything through this Jesus who was created by God. And then he became a man. So Jesus, there was a time when he was not. Jesus is not God. That's what Arius taught. Uh, we see that modern day Jehovah Witnesses um, another example, there was a guy named Eutychus who taught Jesus' two natures, his God nature and his human nature, mixed into one. So he's neither fully God, fully man. He's watered down Coke. He's humaned down God, if you want to say it that way. There was another guy, Nestorius. He taught that Jesus was a Jewish man, and God the Word, who's a separate person, comes and unites with this Jewish man. So there's two people 
right, going on here. And then a, a, another one that was uh, also kind of famous back then was Apollinaris who said, God the Son took on a human body but not a human soul. So he's just God in the bod is what I tell my high school students. Um, so all of these teachings the church fought and defended against, namely because if these teachings are true, it would render salvation ineffective and impossible for us. Because the church taught that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And part of the reason that they taught that is if he's not fully God, he can't reconcile us to God. If he's not fully man, he can't pay the price that man owes to God. So we have a dilemma. Man owes God a price that only God could pay, but man had to pay it. So Jesus, who is God, becomes a man and pays that price for us. And so one of the results of the early church defending against all these teachings that were attacking Jesus' relationship with the Father is that one of the clearest descriptions of what salvation was in the early church was salvation was defined as us participating in Jesus' relationship with his Father. Us participating by faith in Jesus' relationship with his Father. So some examples of this in Scripture. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he starts off by saying, Our Father. Why are we able to say that? It's because we quite literally are counted as Jesus is before his Father. We share in his sonship before God. Right? Paul says it another way in Galatians 4, 6. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So our text today brings the father-son relationship to the forefront. It's the main thrust of what John is actually teaching in John chapter 5, 19 through 29. And you can see this by, if you go through 19 through 29, father is used nine times. Son is used ten times. So over and over and over again, you get father, son, father, son, father, son. So that's where Christ wants our focus today. He wants it on the relationship between him and his father. So in, in, in two weeks ago, because we, we took off last week due to ice, um, two weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath, and he supported this decision for healing a man on the Sabbath in verse 17 by saying, my father is working until now and I am working. So that's his support. And then verse 18, the Jews kind of give two accusations to Jesus that are interrelated. The first one is breaking the Sabbath, but the second one is far more damaging from their mindset. It's he's made himself equal with God. You can see that in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus was working because God was working. God the Father was Jesus' father, therefore Jesus is working, and he's equal with God. And so in our text today, Jesus doubles down on that last point. When they accuse him of being equal with God, it's almost like he responds by saying, you don't even know the half of it. So let me tell you exactly what you're accusing me of and tell you why it's exactly right. I am equal with my father. And so we'll see five teachings from Christ on exactly kind of how he is equal with God. And the first three are going to come together from a unit in verse 19 through 24. That's kind of a word unit that goes together, verses 19 through 24. And 
in that unit, it's bookended by what's called an inclusio. It just means kind of like these two bookends that hold something together. Uh, the, the inclusio is a truly, truly statement. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. So the unit begins with that and it ends with that. And kind of during that first unit, 19 through 24, there's four fours, F-O-R, four fours. And each one of those fours kind of draw out these teachings that Jesus has made. The last two teachings are going to come from the last four verses or the last six verses, 25 through 29, which is also bookended together by the word hour, H-O-U-R, hour. So we're going to look at Jesus' first teaching about equality. Um, You can throw it up there. The first one is this, the father and the son are equal in work and in love. And this is coming from verses 19 through 20, uh, which say this. So Jesus said to them, And here's our first truly, 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 I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. So the first thing to note here is the word Jesus said Said is actually, it should be translated as answered, which is, you know, similar to said. But it's in the middle voice. And so there's this interesting thing about this Greek word answered when it shows up in the middle voice. Um, This is uh, from Daniel Wallace. He's a modern-day Greek scholar. He, He writes this. The use of the word answered is an illustration of the middle voice aorist use, which almost always means or connotes a solemn and legal utterance. Translate into English. When Jesus answered them, it has a legal edge to it. He's been accused of twofold, breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God. And now he's legally defending himself with these what's going to follow. And so the whole purpose of these next few verses is Jesus answering the charge of breaking the Sabbath, but more specifically the charge that he is equal with God. He's not going to change this truth, but rather he's going to further define it and claim it for himself, uh, that he is those things. So there's an interesting thing with the Sabbath. Uh, Early Jewish rabbis asked a a really strange question in light of Genesis 2, uh, the seventh day when God rests, right, from all of his works. They asked the question of, if God rested on the seventh day, was he also still working? And if he was still working, was God breaking the Sabbath? Because God, uh, I think David pointed, this, Pastor David pointed this out in his sermon uh, two weeks ago. God always remains active, even on the seventh day when he rested. He was still holding the universe together by the word of his power. And so the, the rabbis are asking, does God break the Sabbath? And One of these rabbis comments on the book of Exodus. He said this, God does indeed work constantly, but without breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus kind of teaches us this as well with one caveat. He basically says because he's God's son and God is active even during the Sabbath, the son is also active during the Sabbath without breaking the Sabbath. A.K.A. I am God. I am equal with God. So he goes right into that second accusation and transitions uh, to there. So he says this, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. This can do nothing 
of his own accord in Greek. It's he cannot do nothing. There's a double negative, and it's, it has the effect of like when you're texting and your friend texts you and it's in all caps, and that means they're either screaming at you or they're like super excited about something. That's essentially what's going on here. Jesus is saying, I can do all caps nothing unless the Father is the one doing it. He does nothing that he doesn't see the Father himself doing. Another little side note here, and this is pointed out by G.K. Beale. There's, there's an undercurrent, I am the new Moses theme going on that we've seen kind of throughout uh, Genesis. We saw uh, one quick example. When he changes water to wine, right, that's almost referring back to the Nile being turned into blood. And there's some like Exodus themes going on here. Well, this also is a call back to Moses. In Numbers 16, 28, Moses says this, and Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. Meaning, the things Moses was doing, he was doing because God was telling him to do it. And Jesus is the greater Moses. Everything that he does, it's because the Father is the one doing it. Everything he says, everything he thinks, it's because the Father is speaking and is thinking. So let's look at this in, in verse uh, 19. You see the first four, F-O-R. For whatever the Father does, that's, the Son does likewise. And then right in verse 20, you get the second four. For the Father, and this explains the reason, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This has the effect of everything that Jesus does He is making visible the Father to us. But it also has the effect of the reason he is able to do that is because the Father loves him and shows him. And then the Son loves the Father and obeys what he has shown. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, says this. um, It's a little bit lengthy, but I think helpful. He says, The love of the Father for the Son is displayed in the continuous disclosure of all that he does to the Son. The love of the Son for the Father is displayed in His perfect obedience that issues ultimately at the cross. This means that whatever the Son does reveals the Father and that the marvelous disclosure of the nature and character of God utterly depends in the first instance not on God's love for us but on the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Mainly when Jesus is extending salvation out, it's not... The main thrust of it is not love for us, but actually the Father's love flowing through Christ to us. The Father loves us. That's why Jesus loves us, because he's doing what the Father does. Uh, Do not miss uh, in verse 20, and greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. Who is the you in that sentence? If If you look back, like who is Jesus talking to right now? Um, he's, he's talking to the very same people that are hating him and wishing to destroy him because he broke the Sabbath by healing the, the person. And then he's making himself equal with God. He's literally talking to his enemies who in their minds currently want to look to kill him. And he's saying this, that you may marvel at the very same time when his enemies want to destroy him. He's literally continuing to work and continuing to speak before them so that they might marvel, so that they might turn from their hatred of God and love Christ and and honor and worship him. 
uh, this word may or might. Anytime you see in English might or may, it likely means it's the verb that follows it is in what's called the subjunctive mood in Greek. And this just means it's, it's hypothetical. We don't know one way or the other if it's going to happen. It's just it's a hypothetical. Jesus is doing that this so that we might. We might not. We might. But he's doing it and he's extending it out there. We'll see that come up again later. So will they turn from their desire to kill the Christ to worshiping Christ or will they not? Um, but even knowing that they want to kill him, Jesus continues to teach. Jesus continues to love. Jesus continues to extend out that they might marvel. So our first point, Father and the Son are equal in work and in love. Our second point comes from verse 21. The Father and the Son are equal in resurrection power. Verse 21 says this, and it's our third four. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So our third four gives us our second teaching. Uh, Our third four focuses on the particular kind of work. So if you go back to verse 20, Father promises the Son, I will show him greater works. And then it jumps right into resurrection. What are the greater works that Jesus is alluding to? What's greater than restoring uh, someone's body back to health? This resurrection that we're talking about here. That's what's greater than those works. And the Father shows him these things. And so here's a question that arises from um, this verse. And then also later on, 25 through 29. What resurrection is Jesus here speaking of? Is he speaking of the final resurrection? When everyone is raised from the dead to life, their bodies are restored, and then judgment happens. Or is he talking about a spiritual resurrection akin to what we call the new birth or regeneration. Um, I believe here it's the new birth that he has in mind. Um, and and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. It's going to come out more particularly in verses 25 through 29. But here he's talking about this spiritual resurrection of his followers who are born again. Something akin to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So here he's talking about the new birth that he was telling to Nicodemus in John 3, who we who witnessed uh, also with the Samaritan woman in John 4. He's again talking about those things. But don't miss this point. He claims that he can give life to the dead, and that belongs properly only to God. And so once again, he's making himself equal with his father, I'll give a few examples of the Old Testament where God alone claims the power of life and death. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says of himself, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Or also, 1 Samuel 2, 6, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol And he raises up. And so Jesus makes this claim that he is also doing what only belongs properly to God alone. Jesus also alludes to this um, even earlier in John. If you go back to John 2.19, Jesus makes the claim, destroy this temple. And he's referring to his body. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up again. 
he makes the claim that he has the power for resurrection. So for as the Father raises the dead, so also the Son. The Father and the Son are equal in resurrection power. So let's look at number three. The Father and the Son are equal in judgment and honor. And this comes from verses 22 through 24, which say, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Uh, end quote. So our fourth and final four is in this verse, in, in, in this unit, 19 through 24. It talks about this idea of passes from the resurrection comments of 21 to now focusing on judgment. And the Father gives Jesus all judgment, and he, he explains, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So this verse kind of parallels back to verse 20, that you may marvel, and now we have another subjunctive phrase, that they might honor, that they might honor the Son. Um, so we see the hypothetical in the may and the might. If Jesus' resurrection power, a.k.a. the greater works that the Father will show him, is that all might marvel his judgment, the fact that he holds all judgment in his hands, is so that all might give honor to him and to him alone. Judgment like resurrection in the Old Testament is something that's reserved for God alone. Uh, Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God is, uh, that's Abraham stating of God kind of uh, negotiating down in the Sodom and Gomorrah statement of, if you find this many righteous people, will you destroy it? We find this, and then he kind of ends, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham's acknowledging the great truth that there's only one judge of all the earth, and it's God. We see another example in Judges eleven twenty seven. God is called, quite literally, the Lord, the judge. And so judge is used as one of his many titles that belongs properly to him. And here in our text, it says, God the Father gives all judgment to his only Son. Verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. That's the reason he gives all judgment. And so this makes Christianity a very exclusive religion. It's a message that's to be proclaimed to all. It's an invitation that's to be extended to all. But the worship of God is very exclusive. Jesus says, if you want to worship the Father, you have to worship me. There is no other way to bring honor and glory and worship to God other than to honor and glorify Jesus, his son. So Nicodemus would have claimed the temple in Jerusalem was a way to worship God. In John 4, the Samaritan woman would have claimed Mount Gerizim is the way to worship God. And here Jesus is saying, I am the only way to properly worship God. He's the fulfillment of where we bring honor to God. He is the physical location where worship and glory and God's presence truly dwells. Uh, let's look at verse 24. And this is, I, I, this was probably the most amazing thing when I saw it in, in scripture for uh, this passage. Verse 24, it kind of concludes the unit. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, 
who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So we have nothing short here but a kind of reverse way of teaching justification by faith alone. That we are brought into a relationship with God by faith alone. And that Jesus' righteousness is given to us, and so we pass out of judgment. That there's already an acquittal of all judgment issued out to us here. It says, whoever hears Jesus' words and believes as a result has eternal life and does not come into judgment. All your sin is forgiven, and there's no judgment to remain for your sin. And so we can trust Christ's words here because he tells us that God the Father gave him all judgment. So when he says, you will not come into judgment, he is literally the author. He is the one who holds the keys of judgment in his hand. So when Jesus makes that declaration, we can take that to the bank because he is the Lord of judgment. So why is this or or how can Jesus make such a declaration before everyone? Well, he has resurrection power. He can bring us back to life and he holds all judgment in his hands and ultimately he takes our judgment upon himself on the cross which we'll see in John 19 and his final word in John it's one word in the Greek it's three words in the English it is finished and I I love what Spurgeon says about the one word he's like it's an ocean of meaning and a drop of language it's one little word that Jesus says but it has an ocean of meaning it is finished he has taken your judgment and drank it down to the dregs. He has emptied out the judgment of God on your behalf if you've heard his words and have believed in him as a result. So we participate in this relationship with God, and now we can pray, Our Father, send Satan. The world has ultimately no power over us because the Lord Jesus himself has declared, You shall not go into judgment. Um, it made me think of, uh, uh, I don't know if anybody listens to Shane and Shane. They have an old song from like 2007 or something. Um, it's called Embracing Accusation. Fantastic song. Probably one of the most explicit ways of making justification by faith just plain in a song. But one of the lines goes like this. Uh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. Singing the, ver- the first verse so conveniently, but he's forgotten the frame, refrain, Jesus saves, right? And so the whole song's about devil's throwing my sins back in my face. And he's saying, you're cursed, and you've gone astray, you've broken God's law. And finally, the, the singer realizes that's 100% true. I am cursed and gone astray. However, Jesus saves. Another thing that this made me think of is John Bunyan Uh, gives a quote on righteousness, Jesus being his righteousness. And he says something along the lines of, whether you you have a high frame of heart, you did something really glorious, and you just feel good about yourself, or you have a low frame of heart, man, you just ruined a relationship, or you just sinned against your spouse, or you just sinned against your friend, or something just brought you really low. Whether you have a high frame or low frame of heart, that is not your righteousness, Jesus is your righteousness, and he is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Jesus is our relationship with God. So the Father and the Son are equal in judgment. Our fourth point comes from verses 25 through 26. The Father and the Son are equal in being the source of life. Uh, 25 through 26 says this. It's another truly, truly. There's three of them. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And so this starts us off on our our second literary unit of this passage, 25 through 29. They're held together by the word our, H-O-U-R. So this double use explains how to distinguish verses 25 through 26 and 28 and 29 because they're both talking about resurrection and judgment. But one says, an hour is coming and now is here. And then the second one says, an hour is coming. And so that Jesus' first statement that he's making here is something that it's coming, but it's also already here. The resurrection that he's talking about is coming, but it's already here. You already have tasted of it. But later on, he's going to say the hour is coming, and he's talking about a future resurrection that's not already here. And so we'll we'll see that a little bit more. Um, So we have our first, uh, look at verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted the Son also to have life in himself. So Jesus is able to give life because he himself possesses life. He's the source of life. And according to this verse, he's the source of life because the Father gave him this. The word granted is the Greek word for gift or giving. So the Father is the author and the source of life, and he has given Jesus as well to be the author and source of of life. And so many uh, of the early church fathers, for 600 years again, many of the early church fathers took this verse as nothing short of teaching what's called the doctrine of eternal generation of the Son. And this gets a little bit heady, but the only reason I want to get a little bit heady is because Jesus just said this. He's getting a little bit heady. And so the text is uh, pointing to this. So in the Nicene Creed, it states at the very beginning, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, and here's the phrase, begotten from the Father before all ages. So Wayne Grudem says that they added this before all ages after begotten of the Father to show that this begetting, this generation of the Son was an eternal begetting an eternal generation. So John 5:26 is really nothing short of a proof text that Jesus was eternally generated from the Father. AK, he was given life. He was given life to be in himself from the Father. As the creed says, Nicene, God Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So let me give a couple definitions here. Matthew Barrett writes a good article on this teaching, eternal generation of the Son. And I'll send this out on uh, Church Center if you want to read it. But 
he says this, the word generation means coming from or coming forth. And with reference to the Trinity, it refers to the sons coming forth from the father's essence. The concept, he then continues, the concept takes us to the very heart of what it means for the son to be the son. He is eternally from the father, which is why he's called the son. To be more specific, from all eternity, the father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the son. The Cappadocian fathers, uh, two of them, Gregory, both of them are Gregory's actually. Gregory of Nisa, his older sister was Macrina. We actually named one of our kids after um, his older sister because she kept her brothers in line. Um, so Gregory of Nisa says it this way, there was no sometime concerning the son's generation from the father. He says it. he exists by generation indeed, but nevertheless, he never begins to exist. His buddy, the other Gregory, gives a good analogy. And by the way, I'm not giving a Trinity analogy. If anybody gives a Trinity analogy, just go like this, cover your ears and go, because there's no analogy for the Trinity. There really isn't. It all falls into some form or fashion of a twisting of what God, who God is. But this is an analogy on um, how something can be caused by something else, but be the same age as the thing that caused it. That you can be caused by something, but be the same age as your cause. So Gregory, uh, in his third theological oration, he says this, it is evident that the cause is not necessary prior to its effects. And then here's his analogy. For the star is not prior to its light. The star is not prior to its light. The star causes light, but simultaneous to the star coming into existence, light also comes into existence. And so to explain this, the father generates the son. He gives life to be in himself. The father generates the son, but since the father is eternal, the son is also eternal. Thus, it's eternal generation of the son. So part of Jesus's legal defense against the Jews um, who are going to kill him because he makes himself equal with God is to claim that the father who has life in himself has given me to have life in myself as well. So the question then for us, right, if the, if the father grants the son to have life in himself and therefore the father and the son are equal in being a source of life, the source of life, do you want life, right? Do you want life? Jesus has life in himself, and he can give it to you. Do you want life? Jesus has life in himself, and he can give it to you. Let's look at this final teaching, and this is really a part two. The Father and the Son are equal in judgment. We've already said that. We've already said that they're equal in judgment, but it says it again, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, Verses 27 through 29, And he has given him authority to execute judgment, Because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So judgment and resurrection is brought up again. This time it's clearly referring to the final judgment. The final resurrection Uh, That comes from Christ. So we can see this in a a couple of ways. Uh, We can see it because first, an hour is coming. 
and he doesn't then add, and now already is. He just says it's coming. Second, the dead who hear his voice in this passage are clearly, it's told where they're from. They're in the tombs. They're actually physically dead, not just spiritually dead. And so why again, right, we get another explanation for why the Father gives this judgment to Jesus. It says this, because he is the Son of Man. And this is the Father testifying through the words of the Son that Jesus is the fulfillment of Daniel 7, um, 13 through 14, which say this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus here is the son of man who's given dominion and glory and a kingdom from his father, the ancient of days. Uh, this truth is, is really important to the, the ministry of Jesus because at the end of Matthew, one of the main reasons they're able to convict Jesus falsely is because he makes this same claim again later on. So Matthew twenty six sixty four, he literally says, you have said so, and soon you'll see coming on the clouds, of, the son of man coming on the clouds again uh, to judge. And then, you know, the high priest rips his robes and says, you've heard it here yourself. He's blasphemed. He's said something that's not true. And so Jesus is actually crucified because of restating this truth later on in his ministry, that he's the son of man, therefore he'll judge. So let's look at verses 28 through 29. They're parallel to 25 because of the use of our, again. But notice the subtle change. For an hour is coming, it's not, now is, right? Verse 25, it says an hour is coming and now is. 28 just says an hour is coming. Jesus is no longer discussing something that is already not yet, but he's just discussing something that is not yet. And what's he referring to? He's referring to this resurrection and judgment. Like we said, with the not yet, the the already now is, we don't have that. And then we also have where these dead are. They're in the tombs. It says, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Uh, earlier on, when Jesus resurrects, it's everyone who hears his voice will live, and they won't come into judgment. Here it's everyone will hear his voice, will resurrect, and some will go to judgment, and some will go to life. And so there's a distinguishment here. Uh, so Jesus is clearly talking about the physical dead here, and then Back in the past, it's the spiritual dead. In 24, it's 25. It's those who hear and believe Jesus' words who will come into life. And here, it's every single person, regardless of whether or not they believe Jesus' words. They'll hear his words, and they'll come back to life physically. So let's put a couple of things together and conclude. A couple of things from 24 and 25, and then 28 and 29. 24 through 25 tells us, That whoever hears the words of Christ and believes in the one who sent Jesus, they'll have eternal life. They won't come into judgment because they've passed from death to life. And our verses here, 28 through 29, it tells us there will be a day when Christ returns and cries out to all the dead in the tombs. And all who are physically dead will come back to life. And it says those who have done good will come to eternal life. And those who have done evil will come to judgment. 
And so the question here is, who is it that does good? Who is it that those who are actually the ones that do good, and they don't come into judgment, but they're granted eternal life? Because it, it sounds like works righteousness, right? It sounds like if you do bad things, you will be judged. If you do good things, you'll receive life. But that's why Jesus put 24 and 25 together. That's why he put justification by faith alone before the final resurrection. So who is it that does good? It is those who heard the words of Christ before physically dying. And after hearing the words of Christ, they believed in God the Father who sent the Son. And by faith and faith alone, they tasted and came into eternal life. It is those who are the ones who will resurrect physically and will be those who have done good. And so it's by faith alone. So three quick applications I want to make to differing groups, and then we'll be done. Uh, The first one is to believers, people who believe. They've heard the words of Christ, and they believe in him. Uh, Believers, marvel at the beauty that's shown to us here regarding the relationship between the Father and the Son, all the things that Jesus just said. The relation, that relationship is our salvation. We are united to Christ by faith alone, and we get to participate in his relationship with his Father. We get to taste of life itself. We get eternal life because Jesus has life in himself. So Jesus is equal with the Father in work. He's equal with the Father in love, in resurrection power, in honor, in being a source of life. And he's also equal with the Father in judgment, and he works that we might marvel and that we might honor him, that we might worship him. He does that for us. Second, if there's anybody here that uh, does not believe, right, you just heard some of the words of Christ, but you don't believe, um, I would just ask that you please look again at the words of Christ and please look closely at the life of Christ, for in them you may find eternal life. Look at Jesus carefully, what he does in the healing of the paralyzed man in verses 1 through 18, and what he says in making himself equal with God in verses 19 through 29. Um, And I urge you to trust him and believe in his words, and according to his own words, you will find life. And uh, I'll read this quote, just kind of summarizing those two groups, believers and unbelievers. This comes from um, Dane Ortland. I was talking with a couple of guys, Andres and Garrett, last night, and this was one of the quotes that we were talking about. Uh, Garrett mentioned this. He said, Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. Looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven, or in a word, judgment. Looking out to Christ, we can only anticipate gentleness, or in a word, life, right? In this third group, I think this third group, we will all be in this group at different facets in our life at one point or many points, uh, but we will all be in this group at some point in time if we're not already in this group. Um, Don't miss the great promise in 29. It's a promise by implication. Those of us who are in Christ will have our physical bodies resurrected and brought into life And into glory. The body will be raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, imperishable, glorious, untiring, and spiritual. 
sickness and suffering and sadness will be unraveled in power, life, and in the glories of Jesus Christ. And that's his promise to us and his resurrection, his resurrection of us. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you so much for not leaving us in the dark, but making yourself visible in the words and the actions and the life of your son, Jesus. Thank you that he was made flesh and dwelt among us and that he has made you known to us. I pray that we would, when we hear his words and when we see his deeds and when we, when we look at Christ, that we wouldn't be filled with disbelief or unbelief, that we wouldn't be filled with this, ultimately this root of hatred and not wanting uh, to believe what he says, but rather, Lord, that you would grant us faith, that you would allow us to trust him all the more with each glimpse that we get of him. And Lord, that we would just look to him for everything and that we would remind ourselves that he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing yourself with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.